everyone, and thanks for tuning in. The Turn and Talk podcast is an education-focused podcast that gives you an inside look into today's schools, classrooms, and the minds of educators in the words of real but anonymous classroom teachers and school staff. The mission of Turn and Talk podcast is to give the education mic back to those who actually do the important work of educating our children, the teachers, the school administrators, and the support staff. I'll invite them to our show and ask them questions, and you will hear their responses without filter. You know, when you're at a conference and you come across a speaker who just hits every nail on the head and you wish you had a pen and paper so you could write everything down that they're saying because you don't want to forget and you're wishing they would just keep talking. Well, that's how I felt during this interview. Although I was recording the interview, I still kept writing things down on my pad. The guest spoke so eloquently about education and special education specifically that I just wanted to keep talking to her. I wanted to keep listening to her. And I hope you'll really enjoy today's episode as much as I did. Our guest today has been in the field of education for over a decade. Currently, she teaches in the capacity of a middle school special education teacher. She teaches at a school located in a low-income neighborhood of a large metropolitan city. Welcome to the Turn and Talk podcast. How are you? Hi, thank you for having me. I'm well. Thank you for your time today. I really look forward to learning about your perspective and our audience looks forward to learning from you. Thank you for your time. We love to start with just, you know, every teacher has a different story of how and why they come to education and become teachers and just want to hear yours. How did this happen? Um, that's a great question. I think I want to like put together like a little bit of a connection between everything starting in, uh, I would say, middle school for me. When I was in middle school, I had an opportunity to be a peer support member for a young boy um, by the name of Sammy, who was wheelchair bound. Mm-hmm. And I was his peer support person for about an entire academic year. And through that experience, it really humanized for me people and young people with disabilities. Like there's a human in there. It's not somebody that's just, you know, wheelchair bound that you can't build a relationship or rapport with. And um, it really opens up my mind and honestly, my heart in working with people who are disabled. And so that was middle school, I would say in high school. I was in a really large high school in New York City, and the high school I was in, in, it gave us an opportunity to explore a career around our 11th and 12th grade year. I really wanted to go into law, but all of the internships and law offices were closed, and I was fast-tracked to work at a psychiatric center for children. And it was there I began to experience live time, like what it looks like to have seven-year-olds, eight-year-olds, all the way up to 12, put in restraint jackets, put in padded rooms, put on drugs to really calm their behavior. And I didn't really know how to process it, but I did know how to ask questions. And when I began asking questions about some of their journey, I was informed that one of the young people woke up one morning next to her twin sister who had deceased and passed away the night before, unbeknownst to her. Another young person was repeatedly sexually abused by his minister. And even though I was like only like 17, 18 at the time, I was aware enough that it sounded like trauma, even though I didn't know what the word trauma was. But it's like, there's like a lot of tough stuff that these children are dealing with and don't know how to 
like really process it yet. So that also humanized me to the trauma that children go through. Once I graduated college, I went into like the field of casework. And then after that quickly transitioned into becoming a day-to-day sub in a self-contained special education sixth grade class. The irony is as a caseworker, most of my cases were students who had an IEP. So I see it as a journey that honestly I was prepared for from I would say around middle school all the way up until today. So I don't think it was like one moment. I believe it was a collection of moments. And those collection of moments um, led me formally into the classroom in 2002. Wow, thank you for sharing that. There's a lot that you just shared. The, one of the first things I heard you talk about is this concept of disability. And there have been so many talks about disability or how to talk about it. What, what do you think? How do you talk about disability? What is your definition of it? Or now that you're in the classroom, what is disability to you? Hmm, that's a great question. The irony is I was diagnosed with a disability in 2014. And if I look back to my childhood, I, I see, for lack of better words, like evidence of it then. So I think that in a very real way, the name, for lack of better word, of the disability that somebody is diagnosed with, it helps you understand the symptoms and then it helps you understand how to manage it. And honestly, that's the beginning and the end of it with me. Other than that, that's a human being who deserves to be treated well. That's a child who deserves to be treated well. These are people who deserve to be advocated for and respected. I think the only thing the title or the label, quote unquote, the disability does is it gives you an entry point to understand and hopefully an avenue to figure out how to help. Yeah. And lately to that point, I have heard the term differently abled being used a lot more in the education discourse. And uh, I kind of like that term differently abled because I 100% agree with you of this concept of a human being uh, who has a different experience and, and they're living in their own way. And Um, we just have to figure out how to accommodate them and also value them. Um, And that's very hard to do. Um, Mm -hmm. Do you think whether issues of mental health or what we may refer to as disabilities prevalent among adults also? I think that it will be safe to overly assume the answer to that is yes, only because, and I would say any of the spectrum of disabilities, be it physical, medical, mental health, you have a generation of people who were either late diagnosed or we had a antiquated medical system that didn't really know what to do with how you know, young people were presenting in school systems, not really knowing how to handle or deal with the way that young people were or are presenting. So I think it's natural that it is also in the adult population. Being a human being is like traumatic in and of itself, right? Like there's no, there is no blueprint to deal with all of the ups and downs that comes with just knowing how to exist, one. And then two, there isn't a blueprint to help families who are either less informed or less inclined to go the route of figure things out medically or even in mental health. So I just, I think the whole of the human population would more than likely have a lot of stuff that they would battle with, to be honest. And then it's up to us, I would say individually, and then in our collective points of power to speak truth to power and Instead of having a 
label that kind of comes across as demeaning or adverse is like everyone deserves to be supported. And I would say teaching is one of the hardest jobs that there is in any profession. You know, it's like it's not every day where, you know, somebody would get up and spend seven to eight hours a day educating, aka quasi parenting other people's children at 20 plus or more, you know, and do that day after day, month after month, year after year. So that experience alone is a lot. And of course, I would say that, you know, teachers need a space that is safe to speak to some of the stressors that naturally come up in the field that we're in. I agree with you. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. Really important food for thought for a lot of people, especially who are in leadership positions in our schools. I think they can reflect on this and hopefully try to support the adults in the building because then it translates and transfers to students and in the classrooms. Speaking of the classrooms, I would love to hear your experience in the in the public schools. I think you've been at different schools also or in different settings. So we'd love to hear around. your experience. <laughs> being around. Uh, so go ahead. Let's let's hear your yeah. your experience. So I would say I walked into the classroom as a day to day sub in two thousand and two. Pretty young. I was either I think 23 or 24, I was like a pretty young person. And I ended up taking over a, a sixth grade emotional support classroom. And their teacher was essentially let go because she had breast cancer. And from what I understand, the school district that I was working in at the time, they had this HR policy where you couldn't be out the Monday after a weekend because that was counted as like an excessive or chronic absence. But those Mondays that she was out, or she was at chemo. So that just felt shitty, to be honest. And of course, like, you know, whether children explicitly state that they like a teacher or not, I think that there's a natural bonding that takes place because I stepped into, you know, their world as their new teacher in January, right? So the woman that they were with, you know, their teacher at the time, that's a pretty long time to... to to be with someone every single day. And as we know, with self-contained, that's your teacher. And that was before the time where self-contained students had the option to transition to other teachers. Does that make sense? Like she was their teacher for every single thing, right? So if you think about the type of bonding and relationships that can take place, whether they do or not, it's a different story, right? That can take place during that long period of time. And I'm pretty sure they were aware that she was out every Monday. They may not have known why, but you naturally bond. So it was rough stepping in to take over that class. They were highly, highly disruptive. And I was teaching in a school that was later shut down because it was considered one of the most violent middle schools in the city. At the school community at the time, they... I taught on the third floor, and the third floor, it had an informal name. They called it the zoo. The reason why they called it is the zoo, because kids would just, and it was a pretty large school, like over a thousand students. So if you can think of over a thousand middle school students, it was over a hundred teachers in the building, right? And if you think about the the type of violent interactions that could happen with that many people to force a school system to shut the school down. It was a lot going on there. Um, I had a group of young ladies at one time coming from the streets to try to jump and fight one of the girls in my classroom. Did not allow that to happen. 
They used to sell drugs in the school all the time. In addition to selling drugs in the school all the time, they used to have the, this thing called Lover's Lane, where kids were doing, you know, things they should not have been doing sexually in the building at the time pretty frequently. It was it was a lot. And I, I walked in, I think that a lot of teachers, you go in well-intentioned. So I went like, you know, dressed every day to like teach and I broke up so many fights. I, my whole entire wardrobe changed and I was in either jeans and Timberland boots every day or jeans and sneakers every day because I was breaking up so many fights. So Wow. And, and that then, was my introduction to teaching. Do you think that made you uh, a stronger teacher, more passionate, or did it bring you to a different kind of understanding? That's a great question. I think that in terms of like compassion and passion, again, if I bring it back to my experience being, you know, Sammy's peer buddy in middle school, I think it started then. Does, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what I when I graduated high school, I wanted to become a Marine, to be honest. So and I come from a family that is mostly law enforcement. So I think that having a firm line and a firm boundary was a, a natural extension to my personality. I think working with Sammy in middle school and then working in a psychiatric center for children in high school like laid the groundwork for me to understand that, that young people are dealing with stuff that they don't have the vocabulary for yet. Yeah. Connect us to where you are now. So like that, that's how you start mm -hmm. and you have this experience that mm -hmm. sounds like uh, change you as a professional and as a human being, you have a deeper understanding. And now you are in a middle school to talk to us about that. Like how, what, ha what happens in between? Okay, so I would say what happened in between um, in my journey, I remained a teacher for, I would say, over eight years and then stepped into leadership. So I was a special education coordinator, then a special ed assistant principal, came back to the classroom and then left and um, moved around to a few different cities. And I was in a leadership capacity in all those different cities. And I would say... Overall, the one common thread has been urban special education, to be honest. And I would say urban special education does not receive the lens nor the support that it deserves. So it's really patchwork in the way that schools in general approach special education. And I think the, the patchwork is not really beneficial to children because we need a, I would say, nationally, if not at the state level, a coordinated approach to how we are educating and supporting children, their teachers, and also their parents in a meaningful way, so that they have an opportunity to make meaningful gains. And we, as an, a community of educators, are offer the opportunity to like uh like stray away from discipline and really focus on the academics and i think a lot yeah. of times in i would say urban education period right um it has become somewhat like militarized and policed to be honest and i think it's an approach that's coming in at the end of a sentence where you have children who have a long history or long family history of trauma on top of more than likely not having the right educational experiences where they are able to read well, right? They are yeah. able to engage with a mathematics problem with 
fidelity and attend to the task and complete it without getting frustrated and tapping out. So I think that as an, a community of academics, we don't address the holistic approach of what that looks like in urban education. And then I believe it becomes quadruple, for lack of better words, when you're looking at urban special education. And I think when I say resources, I'm not talking about money because money is there. It's like how we're using those resources and what we're prioritizing. Do you think this has to do with how leadership of a school, any school, decides how uh, funds are allocated and, and what to prioritize? Or do you think it's more to do with the teacher in the classroom? I think it's a combination. I don't think it's one size fits all. So I've been in certain academic spaces where and it's specific to special education, you could not, quote unquote, prove that you were educating a child well if you are not utilizing research-based math interventions and research-based reading interventions. And I stand behind that. And what I've said in those spaces is, like, as long as I've been in academics and as an educator, it's what, 17 years by now, right? If not, 18, sorry, 18 (laughs) years by now, right? Going into 18, rather. Even with all of that experience, right, I'm not a researcher. And as much as I know about teaching, again, I'm not a researcher. So I don't have a comprehensive program that I can offer children, just me and just me being myself as my students, um, special education teacher, I can bring my best to the table and give them a quality education that I can offer based on my experience. But I would say nothing beats research-based interventions that have proven gains and proven success. And that has been replicated, you know, several times over that says, yep, if you use this program, students will grow at least a one academic year, if not more, in reading, right? And or in mathematics. So I think that that needs to be the focus one everywhere, I would say nationally at the state level and also at the school level. And I also think we cannot ignore the level of intense trauma that children experience that they don't have the vocabulary for. And I've often said, you're not educating the brain of a child. Like you have to be able to sift through everything that they have gone through to meet them at the moment, to be able to provide them with a quality academic experience. You don't, if you're like, if you're not naturally inclined to understand that children experience a lot of intense trauma, you may not know what to do and you may get frustrated and you may quit. Yes, I think I love that you use the term urban special education. I had never really made that distinction before, but I do feel that you're spot on that it's a different thing and it requires a different or not different necessarily, but it probably requires additional perspectives, additional resources, different uh, approaches, also including something related to trauma instruction. Well, not trauma instruction, I guess that's the wrong phrase, but uh, trauma-informed training. Thank you, that. Yes. So when you were saying you're, it's not just the brain, I, I was thinking that in urban special education, we have to, I think, think about the brain, the mind, and the spirit. Like those are the things that have to be developed because, you know, they all interact and inter- there's an interplay between them and the social and emotional well-being. Lasting learning is very difficult to achieve if those things are not in a balance of some sort. That's um, a great quote. <laughs> you, just, you, need to, you need to package that. That's a book. 
If not yeah. a vlog, I'm serious. Uh, thanks. We'll see. We'll see. I, I am going to do a reflection after our interview and we'll, we'll write some things out and I'll definitely share them <laughs> with you. But what is the job of schools in this urban special education environment? Like, what is your job then? Are you looking to solve anything? Are you looking to change things? Are you looking to, like, what is education to you in urban special education? I've honestly, again, like I've been around for a while. That's the best question I've been asked. And honestly, I don't, and I've said, I've said this in different spaces, like I don't have like the answers. I can tell you what I know isn't working. If we start the academic year off only talking about, and when I say we, I'm talking about teachers in general, right? Uh-huh. I'm talking about city level, school level, state level, nationally. If we start off the year solely focused on academics, we're missing the mark. We are. And it's like, it may be unpopular to, to think about or even unpopular to say. And again, I think it's a natural extension for me to say it because of my work with Sammy, right? And because of my working at the, at the Child Psychiatric Center and because I was a caseworker first. Teaching is yeah. casework, especially if you're a special education teacher. You are a caseworker. You're reading all of those evaluations for a reason. Can you tell us a little bit more about, can you define the term caseworker for our audience? What do you mean by that? Sure. So when I think of the word caseworker, you have to write up notes. You have to write up a treatment plan. You have to write up updates. You have to implement the treatment plan and then track it and make adjustments if it is working and if it's not working. If it is working, all right, so you move on to the next. If it is not working, then you remove it and you move on to the next in a different capacity. Yeah. And I've often said in different spaces, like an IEP isn't a cemetery document. What I mean is you don't write it and then you never look at it again until a year later. It's like it has to be a constant part of the conversation of how we are yeah. thinking about supporting children and their families, to be honest. So that is casework. And even if you are not a special education teacher entitled, you more than likely are teaching a student with a disability, either if they have a 504 or an IEP in your classroom, right? Because integrated co-teaching is a very real thing. Or having yeah. kids in a general education classroom and they are pulled out for resource room or sets, wherever it's called and dependent on the space, you are still responsible for educating that kid. And you need to know how to. And I have a lot of compassion for teachers who were only trained how to teach academically and they don't know how they don't have the skills nor the program to run an intervention and they don't have the skills nor the mindset to address trauma all of that is real and all of that should happen in lockstep with as much focus and as much intensity and as much fidelity as we are talking about academics because you don't just educate the brain of a child when you are talking about like the the trauma informed education concept have you been able to attend any training and then i'd love to also just hear your experience with training as a special educator like what kind of pds have you uh, received do they feel relevant which ones or what are the factors or the features of a good yeah. one and what are the features of a not so good one? So yeah. tell us about your professional development journey and how that's worked for you. Yeah. And so this may be unpopular to like traditional public school, non-charter teachers, but the best PDs I've received around special education and trauma around special education and interventions has, has been in the charter school sector. Um, and I was in the charter school world for 
six to seven years. So me too. Okay, good. So it's not a it's point of comparison to be disparaging to traditional public school settings, but it is a point to raise up and mention that that is specifically where I've seen personally special education done the best not just well, like be best. And I think that there are some things that the charter school world can do better and should be doing better. And I would also say that there's a lot of things that differently, better. I don't know. When I say better, I'm always thinking about it from the impact of children and what yeah. that experience is like. And then I would also say that there's a lot of things that traditional school districts um, do better or well, right? When yeah. it comes so, to working with kids. And, and to that point, you know, there's a tendency of... Uh, doing it to both both sides, um, you know, when we're having a discourse about charter schools or public schools, there's a tendency of us creating this like wide brush, um, you know, sweep at like, oh, these are public schools. That's what public schools are doing. Or these are charter schools. That's what the charter school is doing. But okay. when, I was, when I was in the charter school, I had this opportunity to be in a leadership co uh, program. I'm not going to name it, but it was, it was a popular one among the top uh, five charter chains. And they would okay. send they would send their people to this program in Boston. And okay. I had the opportunity to go there and attend a lot of leadership training there. And part of the training was that you would go to and spend time at all of what they thought were the, some of the best charter schools. So mm -hmm. they, would, they would take you to those schools and we would shadow people, observe classrooms, talk to <coughs> school leaders and learn how they do what they do because apparently they do it so well. Uh, that was the mm -hmm. assumption. But the great part was, you know, you got, we got to see so many schools. And the one thing that was clear that they're definitely, definitely not all the same. You cannot say that all charter schools do it this way or these are all the things that all charter schools do bad or all, you mm -hmm. know, all the things that they do good. They're so mm -hmm. vastly different, just like so many public schools are so vastly different. Just wanted to make mm -hmm. that point for our listeners um, mm -hmm. that we should avoid Fair. the generalization. So I'm going to say that my generation specific to me and my journey has been, I've been at more than one charter organization and I've been in more than one public school setting. So in my journey as yeah. a, an educator, I've been to about rough, through about roughly 10 different organizations, school systems between charter and traditional public schools over the course of 17 going into 18 years. So I would say like speaking from my lens, having been around, the way that I've seen from my lens, right, special education done the best has been at the charter school level, right? And it hasn't been at every single charter school that I've been at, but right. in general and overall, that's where I've seen it done the best. And that's like my personal experience, having been through this journey for like professionally for quite some time. Yeah, right? and you're, you that's and I are both, and yeah. yeah, I agree. And you and I are both public school teachers right now. So it's yeah. not about this or that yeah. for right. us. Um, but I do agree right. with you. I was most impressed with the uh, focus on training and professional development and yep. not just like professional three development. weeks straight. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And not only that, a lot of the really good charter schools, they were, they were very picky about the trainings. Yes. Uh, if it didn't align with the mission, if the presenters didn't seem organized and really yes. professional about their work, we yes. are not going to put our teachers in front of them. Yes. Um, and that right. I was most impressed with. And I feel I learned a lot. Agreed. Agreed. And I will also say this too. I remember when I was leaving the city and going and like moving out of state and going into the charter school world, I was leaving at a time when it was like combative relationship between charters and public schools. And it's so unfortunate. Me, 
It is. And it's like, to be honest, if I had a middle school child this day, my middle school child, if, if I'm still living in the city that I'm in, my child would be at the building that I teach in right now, which is a traditional public. And if I was living out of state in the same state that I was in, my kid, the same middle school child would be at the charter middle school. So it's not about, for me, a competition. It's recognizing where things are done well and where things are done well with intentionality, with our approach to educating children and supporting their families. So I, I want to also name for myself that I don't have this um, competition of charter versus public school. Like right. again, if I had a middle school child, child today, my child will be at my traditional public school that I teach at right now. And even, I want to also say to your listeners, thank you for that. Even on my journey leaving and New, leaving New York, to be honest, and moving around to the different states that I've been in, I've said everywhere I've been that the school that I'm in now, to me, has always been the best in terms of a comprehensive way that children are educated and supported. No matter where I went, I always spoke back to the school that I, I returned to where I'm at right now. So I want to also name that too. It's for me, it's really all about the intentionality and how we are supporting teachers and supporting families and supporting their kids. So in yep. a traditional public school setting, the place that I work at right now, I'm a returning teacher and it still has been all these years, like the highlight in my professional career in general and overall. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. And we, we were you know, saying uh, the trainings that you've been receiving, especially related to trauma, uh, yeah. informed education. Have you come across any in your recent professional career uh, that were impactful? Yeah, I, I don't want to name the person. I can tell you that person's name offline, but he's sure, the, sure. Um, he was a he was the director of psychology in the organization that I worked with. And he is super dope. And I also want to say this, too. I am a woman of color. I identify as black. I am, you know, technically multi-ethnic, but I identify as a black woman. The gentleman that I'm talking about is a white man. And I say this all the time when it comes to educating children. It's not about race. It is not. It is about who has the focus, who has the heart, and who has the dedication to do right by children, one, and to constantly reflect on and improve your craft, two. That's it. And, you know, sometimes we get into, you know, race conversations when it comes to educating children. And I think that there's a space for it, right? But that can't be the only way that we're viewing and talking about teachers, educators, and administrators. I've seen the best just across, you know, all of like, like the United Nations. I've seen the best white. I've seen the best Asian. I've seen the best black, Hispanic. It's about yep. training. It's about your focus. And it's about you improving your craft and how much you are willing to dedicate your best self and giving that to the children that you are responsible for. I agree with you there. And the conversation about identity in general, whether the identity marker is race, sexuality, ethnicity, or religion, gender, of course, those are important conversations, especially at the schools, because our children are discovering those identity markers a lot of times. And we're, mm-hmm. we're the people helping them you know, identify those identities for themselves and how to... Uh, walk the world with them. So I think it's, there's are important conversations, but they, should, they shouldn't be the only lens through which I agree. A hundred percent. The school experience. Mm-hmm. There's so much. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Agree. Talk to us about the things that brought 
you the most joy in these last 18, 19 years of teaching? You don't have to my be specific, but like general. No, yeah. I'll say, I'll, I know it'll stop. It's my relationship with parents. And well, with I parents, feel, not students? And I'm going to tell you why. I feel really lucky and feel really fortunate. I believe that the amount of trust that parents and guardians put into educators is like something that's really so hard for me to wrap my brain around. And I'm not a parent yet, but I have what I think 11 to 13 nieces and nephews, and they all range into being adults to, you know, a few months old. And when you think of turning your child over or your or a, a child and your family over to just a daycare provider. It's when terrifying. Like, <laughs> I, I mean, okay, like I can't even, I can't imagine. Or when you are, for me, being in the city still, it's like you're driving around and you see like the little three, four-year-olds and like the little chain, the little chain thing where they're all holding on to a rope going on a school trip. It's just like, I can't take it, right? And then you think <laughs> about the, you know, the as your children um, get older and they become school age and it's like parents are trusting you to do right by their children. And I don't mean perfect, but do right and care and plan and all that stuff. And it's like for parents to trust that I am going to do the very best that I can to provide their child with a quality education. I don't think anything trumps that, to be honest. And then I will say after that, my relationships with students. Yeah. And, you know, I hear relationship with students as one of the things that every teacher, even related service providers that we've had on the show, who've talked about what matters to them, that always comes up. But this parent concept, I think is so, it's so great to hear that for you that's been such a satisfying experience it has and i can and i won't share where but i'll share like two different these were two different charter experiences that i was in in terms of organizations in two different states but i had this one experience and like i cry but crying isn't a natural extension of my personality like i i tend to think first and try to understand first and um, i was in this one particular meeting and the family just came from Haiti and we were talking about you know medication management with her son and I wouldn't want to say too also my stance on medication is like out of my entire journey going on 18 years now I have maybe on my 10 fingers have seen and really understood that this child really needs to have access to medication in order to be safe number one and then be able to engage academically. That's not a lot in 18 years. It's like 10 kids. And and, and 10 is generous. And so what she was saying is that her son was complaining that the ADHD medication was hurting his brain. And that like hurt me, to be honest, but I still kept it together in the meeting. And then she said, we just came from Haiti. We were living in Haiti for 25 years and we get here to America and he leaves, he left us. He left us for a woman in the next neighborhood and my son stays up all night crying. I lost it. Man. I could not get it together and I had to apologize to the team because I naturally do not cry, but I felt the intensity of her pain, which was multi-layered. I don't understand yeah. what's happening with my son and his disability. I do not understand why he's been left back so much. He's saying the medication hurts his brain physically. And my husband just left us after 25 years. Like, how do you wrap your brain around that? And then my other experience, there was a guardian, a grandmother. I was like cooking dinner and she called me like at 10 o'clock at night. Her, Her grandson was in high school running the streets. And she's like, you know, miss, like I'm old. 
I don't know what to do with him. You know, I don't want him to go to jail, but I do not, I, I'm old. I do not know what to do. And that, like, that, like, touched me because that's a very real reality in urban education in general and urban special education where you have grandparents raising these children. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. that's a whole other conversation about drugs and mass incarceration that I won't get into here, but that's a very real reality that a lot of people don't consider and they don't respect. Yeah, definitely. I can even honestly reflect on my own practice where knowing what I know about my students, sometimes in the moment in, in, in a classroom where I'm struggling to get a message across to a child or motivate them to do something, uh, that I feel is academically and socially emotionally beneficial for them. When they don't, sometimes my natural thought is, all right, this is it. I'm calling home. Like, this can't happen. You know, it's good uh, because it's frustrating in the moment. But then I have met many parents like you're describing who are like, I understand what you're saying. And I also need help to figure out what to do. And it's very easy for sometimes teachers to feel like, you know, let's, it's, the, it's the parent or whatever. It's at home. But now that I'm a parent, there's, I understand. I don't know how to f- do things sometimes with my own child. Like, I don't know why my child isn't listening to me. Right. Um, and it's such a hard thing to wrap your head around because you want the parents to fix things for you because you're thinking about your classroom and your goals. But right. there's so much more. Um, so being partners with parents sounds like what you were to this yeah. grandparent is what's like, maybe we need more conversation and training around that, how to become partners with parents. Yes, 100%. We're running out of time. It's so the last thing I would, would ask you, um, kind of relates to everything we've been talking about, but it appears that a lot of people are dissatisfied with primary and secondary education in our country and in the urban centers, especially people feel like, oh, public school education is failing or whatever. I hear that a lot in the news, all kinds of stuff. Now, in your view, do you think there's something wrong with our education system, schools, teachers, teaching profession? And if there's something wrong at all, and if there's nothing wrong, then why such uh, conversation? That's a good question. I would say that maybe instead of wrong, I would say the first thing is, to me, is antiquated. I don't understand why we like continue tracking kids from kindergarten to to 12th grade, like that whole linear approach. And I would say more specific to special education, what I've said to parents often is like, you know, you have until 21. (laughs) It's just like, there's no need to rush. Like, why don't we focus on getting it right? That's fun, right? And then if you look at, you know, and I'm not saying Montessori is the answer, but when you look at more progressive ways of the way children are um, educated, it's way more exploratory. And you have kids across different grades and across different age spans, like being educated in the same space. I really am adverse, to be honest, to high stakes standardized testing. If I was a parent, my kids wouldn't engage in any of it until high school ninth grade, to be honest. I have a pretty large family in terms of siblings, and my sister is about to be a sergeant. Her husband is a detective. And I say all that to to name that these are people who are educated, and they do not allow my niece nor my nephew to take any state testing. I have Mm -hmm. a cousin who lives 
in Baltimore. She's a registered nurse. She works at Johns Hopkins. She doesn't allow her sons to be state tracked in the state testing either. I think that we overly test. I think that there's a space for it. But if we're overly testing and we're not really focusing on developing students to critically think, if we're not really focused on students' ability to engage real time with like problem solving and you know, engaging real time in STEM and engaging real time in the arts. And if everything is only literacy focused and if everything is only math focused, I can understand as a young person today where some of them, children, young people be like, I'm bored and I'm checked out. This is boring. I don't want to do this anymore. I'm sick of learning about this. Yeah. And I wouldn't say that they're wrong. And I think we need to be way more creative and way more progressive and our approach to educating young people. And when I say we, I'm talking about myself too, because I'm far from perfect and I'm a lifelong learner. But I think that we need to be really begin listening to young people and start asking them. So if you could wave a magic wand to change something or add something or remove something, would it be test scores or is there something else to make our education system better? I would, it would be three. <laughs> Go would, for it. <laughs> okay. I would say I am super passionate about the school to prison pipeline. And just a personal story, I was teaching, I was a leader, sorry, not a teacher. I was a leader in a high school in a different state. And I had a student that stole my wallet. And the team naturally asked me if I wanted to call the cops. And I was like, no, it sounds like this young person needs help. If he stole my right. wallet and it was... It was a really small office with three adults in that office, and we were all engaging in an intense conversation. He wasn't in that room for two minutes, in and out, but it was like we were in this intense conversation. He came and said hello, so we thought, but he came and took my dead on wallet, you know? <laughs> and so it was like, no, don't call the cops. Get, I mean, he definitely deserves a consequence, and people should also know, and I learned this recently myself within the last two to three years, a consequence is not punitive. A consequence is how you respond. So right. I want to make that clear. A consequence isn't always punitive. A consequence is how you respond. So yes, he needs a consequence. And the response is this young person needs some help. And I can, and I said then, I can only assume he's already involved with the police. If you just did that, right. that quick. And he was. You know what I'm saying? And the, the team, you know, to their credit, you know, took my lead on it and went in the direction of getting him wraparound services in the community that he was raised in. So like thinking about that, you know, school to prison pipeline one, getting rid of this intensity of high stakes standardized tests. And there's a place for it, but there's also a very real reality where it is so anxiety provoking for children. I was again, a leader in a completely different charter school setting in a completely different state at a middle school. And this young lady had a mental health breakdown because she couldn't deal with the intensity of what came with preparing herself for high stakes testing. It's too much. And is it worth it? So right. those are my two. And then the last one is trauma informed training that happens the minute Teachers come into their school spaces to get training for the academic year. And trauma-informed training is not a one-time thing. It should happen at the very least once a month. And we need to be talking about kids respecting their privacy, but teachers should know the traumas that the, the children in their, the, or the students rather, 
in the academic community are experiencing. And then they also need to be trained on how to respond. So those are my three. Thank you for sharing all of that. I While you were talking about the trauma-informed training, I also thought about, oh, what about the graduate school programs where teachers are trained? High do we need, five. Do we need to start yes. thinking about how to do that differently? Yes. Or even <laughs> undergrad for people that want to go into teaching. Because honestly, I have a lot of compassion especially for the younger teachers or teachers, he, even if you are older and you don't really understand trauma for whatever reason, because that might not have been your reality. And again, I'm not talking about race. If you are only taught to teach reading and math, you don't know how to deal with the traumas that you know some of these children are dealing with, a death of a parent or a parent who's really terminally ill or you're living with relatives and not your biological parents or you have uh, one of your family members that is incarcerated, like all this stuff, you know, that some children go through and a lot of children go through. And if you don't know about how to really engage with that and think about it and address it, you are overwhelmed and some people may feel like I came here to teach. I didn't come here to do this. And then you leave as opposed to giving them the training that they deserve so that they can stay and do well and do right by kids because they feel supported. I agree. If you're not addressing it, you're ignoring it. On that note, we hope that those uh, wishes one day will come true <laughs> for you <laughs> and for, for the sake of the children and for us also. Mm -hmm. Thank you for your time. I wish I had another hour or two to, to, to keep talking. <laughs> Thank you. This has been yeah, so yeah, great. Yeah. No worries. Thank you for the opportunity. And um, I wish everyone who's listening the best and if anything I've said resonated, please hit it a home run with it because it's a community of us that engage in this work, not just me by myself. Thank you so much. And that's all for today's episode, folks. Thank you for tuning in. Turn and Talk Podcast is your one-stop shop for learning about what is actually happening in schools today directly from the people who are working in today's schools. The support for this podcast comes from listeners like yourself, people who are interested in the present and the future of education. So feel free to head on over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash turn and talk podcast we invite you to also follow us on instagram at turn and talk podcast if you haven't subscribed yet please go ahead and do that too so that all future episodes are available to you upon release and downloaded immediately to your device if you have questions thought feedback or if you work in a school and would like to take the mic back please please email us at turn and talk podcast at gmail.com thank you for tuning in this is your host, Jay McSuits, signing out. Peace.